Hello there, and welcome to Where's My Freaking Dressing Room, a podcast where we discuss the world of classical music and what things are really like backstage. My name's Helen, and today we're recording a special edition podcast episode. And for this episode, we're going to be deviating from our traditional podcast format. Sadly, Alex isn't joining me for this episode, but don't worry, I think I've got something pretty special in store. As I hope many of our regular listeners know, one of the main aims of Where's My Freaking Dressing Room is to provide an open and honest account of what it can be like to be a classical musician in the UK. With this in mind, I'm proud to be able to use this podcast to present the research project I've been working on over the last year. Since September 2020, I've been conducting a research project as part of my master's degree at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance. This research project has seen me conduct interviews with a cross-section of UK-based singers and opera houses to discuss the combined effects of the coronavirus pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, two events which undoubtedly took hold of our country throughout 2020. The episode I'm about to present will take the form of a roundtable discussion and to get things started I'd like to welcome four very special guests who are joining me remotely today. We have uh, Monique Folger who is the Opera Holland Park associate producer. Hello. We have Johnny Langridge who's Gartington Opera's director of development and communications. Hi everybody. We have Annie Lidford who is the Neville Holt Opera managing director. Hello. And we have internationally acclaimed soprano Gwyneth Ann Rand. Hello. I wouldn't go that far, but hi. (laughs) Today, I'll be asking my guests for their thoughts and comments on three themes that were highly prevalent throughout my research. And we'll also explore some of the work being done by the opera houses I've invited to join me today, both in terms of supporting their artistic and administrative communities during the pandemic, as well as their commitment to improving diversity in opera. But before we get into the heart of this discussion, I'd like to just give you a little bit of background on how I came to conduct this research project. In 2020, two global phenomenons occurred, which I believe altered the course of our history. The first is that the coronavirus pandemic swept across the globe. It halted economies, it tested communities, and it is tragically ending now well over three million lives. Secondly, on the 25th of May 2020, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis who knelt on his neck for a total of nine and a half minutes. Videos of this grievous assault were rapidly shared worldwide via social media, sparking protests against police brutality and reigniting the message of the Black Lives Matter movement. Coronavirus devastated the music industry worldwide. Venues were closed. Social distancing made countless productions unviable. And many musicians were left wondering when and how they would work again. Creatives in the UK were vocal about their plight using the hashtag WeAreViable to prove to the government that the arts are a sustainable industry and therefore deserving of support during this crisis. However, the government support provided to the arts during this time has been widely considered insufficient. The first countrywide lockdown was announced on the 16th of March 2020, and only on the 5th of July 2020 was an arts support package confirmed by Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Although the figure of £1.57 billion appears impressive, and it is, as details of the financial support were released, it became evident a large majority of this grant would be apportioned to the country's cultural giants, the Royal Opera House, the English National Opera, Wilton's Concert Hall. 
On October the 12th, 2020, the government launched a Rethink, Reskill, Reboot campaign, encouraging those in struggling industries to adapt in these difficult times and change career. Posters of ballet dancers, baristas and retail workers were released, suggesting that their next job could be in cyber. But, you know, considering the arts contributes £10.8 billion to the economy and prior to the pandemic, the creative industry sector was growing faster than the overall economy as a whole. It's hard to see why the arts were being offered little financial or structural assistance. And so I sat there and I wondered, why is it that the governments feel the arts don't need more support? Rishi Sunak, he knows the figures, so why could there not be more aid? And I wondered if it's because perhaps the government simply can't see that the arts needs more help. I'd like to consider this through the lens of classical music. Classical music, to me, is somewhat like a swan. Both are elegant animals that hold themselves with poise, with grace, with composure. But in this case, for me, the critical difference between classical music and a swan is with a swan, we all know how hard the legs are having to paddle underneath. Classical music, however, I find it operates with less transparency. The industry keeps hard work, effort and and struggle in some cases behind closed doors. Hey, the stereotypical classical music event presents itself as a preen and pristine beast. We see concert dresses, we enjoy interval drinks, we hold civilised conversation and we bask often in beautiful surroundings. Any struggles, be they structural, personal, emotional or financial, are hidden from plain sight. Classical music offers itself to audiences as a calm, controlled and measured product. Now, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. I think the trouble is when this self-constructed narrative starts to work against itself. I wonder if classical music's composed outward image means that in times of difficulty, the industry falters and support isn't given because it's not publicly understood as to how and where such support is needed. Up until this point, classical music's preen and pristine image has enabled the industry to maintain a sleek and polished profile, yet... I wonder if this privacy, this lack of transparency, is now proving to be an obstacle which is damaging the future of our industry. So that's a little bit on my thoughts on coronavirus. And then secondly, the death of George Floyd. The death of George Floyd and the subsequent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement resulted in worldwide protests, the toppling of statues, the renaming of venues and streets and the commitment from worldwide bodies to promote diversity. Countless classical music organisations made public statements outlining their pledge to promote diversity in their work. And as honourable as many of these intentions have been, it has not escaped my attention that certain organisations, I believe, have seen hiring one or two diverse artists or staff members as fulfilling their commitment. Yet, given the evident imbalance surrounding diversity in classical music, surely this movement should encourage our organisations to just undertake a total overhaul. We examine internal structures, we consider subconscious prejudices and we review staff demographics, artist rosters and recruitment policies. Now, credit must go to organisations that are committed to doing the necessary work. However, when one considers the last four prom season where only two of 13 new commissions were written by black composers or the recent Arts Council creative case report, which listed that only 8% of staff members in musical MPO organisations were from black minority and ethnic backgrounds, there is no denying that there is still a huge amount of work to be done. 
And so I return to my observations on the lack of transparency in the arts, in particular in classical music. At a time where organisations are being held accountable for their commitments to diversity, I, I fear that the clandestine nature of the arts and classical music can sometimes mean soundbite statements and tokenistic appointments can often be made on the surface, but with little genuine change taking place underneath. Now, that is a very, very short summary of the background into my research project. But this idea of the lack of transparency in our industry very neatly takes me to the first prevalent theme which came out of my research. Throughout the course of my project, almost every singer I spoke to commented in one way or another about the pandemic resulting in artists and industries speaking more honestly and openly. Singers in varying stages of their careers noticed that artists were posting on social media in a different way. Posts weren't about the next upcoming concert, the next recording, nor who they were enjoying working with, nor thanking a media outlet for a review. Instead, a number of the people I spoke to felt they were reading artists' genuine thoughts and feelings. I think at times it did make for heartbreaking reading, but a number of my interviewees commented that this openness and honesty encouraged a genuine sense of community throughout the early days of the pandemic. This wasn't actually just with singers. One industry representative I spoke to recalled the controversy surrounding Norman Lebrecht's article, Summer Opera Faces Rosen Cavalier Baby Crisis, and was encouraged to see many musicians, artists and industry officials taking Lebrecht to task on Twitter for his crass wording. I think there was, there was this greater sense of community. And this sense of community, compounded with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, meant that many of my interviewees commented on having conversations about race which they'd never had before, myself included. Coronavirus forced the world to stop. The death of George Floyd occurring during this time meant that the media coverage and the powerful force of social media made this event unavoidable. As a result, I think many people were reckoning with themselves, considering their past actions and learning how to do better. One singer I spoke to from the black community noted that following the death of George Floyd, countless friends and colleagues called to ask if their past actions had been okay. Another said that the death of George Floyd had caused a movement in the younger generation unlike anything he had seen or experienced before. Industry representatives noted that... Yes, an overall commitment to diversity was something they'd been chipping away at, but the impact of the murder of George Floyd forced them to talk more frankly, to assess the reality of the current situation and to act with greater urgency. One industry representative commented that it was time for opera to stop being scared of how bad sometimes this looks and to start taking action. Many of my interviewees lauded the sense of openness and honesty they'd experienced during the initial stages of the pandemic. However, almost all were in agreement that it didn't last. As singers of repute began to work again, the traditional posts of looking forward to tonight, tune in for X, oh, I'm loving rehearsing with Y, they all reappeared and in a way started to dismantle that once supportive community atmosphere. A sense of competition with it returned and, you know, alongside that, perhaps some anxiety. Similarly, in the months following George Floyd's murder, one couldn't help but wonder the extent to which diversity was remaining a crucial policy point in people's minds. Was one black square on Instagram? Was it enough? And so I would really like to open this initial topic to the floor here. This kind of idea of 
an openness and an honesty that was in our community, albeit virtual. Did you guys sense that? Did you feel that? Were you part of that? And did you sense a change as as work has started to come back in to, to the arts and, and our field? Monique, yes. I would say definitely, um, especially when we first um, cancelled our season, the sense of shared loss from everyone that was involved was really massive. And I think because we had to be really honest about what we could do, what we could pay people, what we could promise them going forward, what our season was going to look like even next year, having to think about, you know, we've never obviously had to cancel the whole season before. And it meant that we had to be really honest and open. And we were with all of our freelancers and we felt their pain that while, you know, we were going to keep our jobs for now. We, they, they were losing work that was coming up in just a few weeks. And it did mean that we had to be really honest. There was no way to sugarcoat it, really. And I think people appreciated that. And it it was a real shared experience, I think. And I think we've retained that throughout this year of continuing to just be open with people and tell them it's not going to be the same when you come back. We've had to make changes. We've had to cut fees everything's different but this is why and we want to do it all together and it should be a collaborative thing and so it has been quite positive in that sense I think and Annie I think you were gonna say something yeah I I completely agree with Monique I think that sense of shared loss was so encompassing across the whole sector and and as, as she says there was that very difficult divide between of course those people mostly on the administration side who perhaps had more job security than those who saw work falling away and I think getting the balance right was really difficult between sharing that loss and recognizing and I know we've heard this a lot but recognizing that the the pandemic did not affect everyone in the same way so that I think certainly led us to think very carefully about how we communicated. I would I would also say one of the ongoing challenges I think with social social media and how we communicate as an industry is that there are two audiences that can feel quite separate, although perhaps in reality they're not. So on the one hand, you have the community of artists and makers and um, administrators who are part of this sort of opera, theatre, music community, music world, and then you do also have audiences who want to find out what's on and what they can come and see and perhaps with work falling away and performances falling away that community rose up and became more prevalent um, for people and perhaps I certainly felt that I was communicating a lot more with colleagues artists I wasn't trying to I wasn't trying to flog anything um I was trying to have quite honest conversations whereas perhaps as work comes back as well particularly this year, we all feel so much pressure to, you know, show audiences that stuff's coming back and, you know, we're working with artists again. And I know artists feel very, you know, those who are able to come back to work feel very proud to be doing so and want to share that. And we all want to communicate something positive to audiences who might engage with what we do. But perhaps that can sometimes feel at odds with that community that has developed over the last year. And I suppose what question I would have for myself as much as anything is whether those audiences are actually different 
whether they should be addressed in different ways and how we balance that so that social media doesn't become as you said Helen that place where actually you know artists and and makers and administrators are logging on and just feeling awful because they're seeing you know the best possible version of what other people are doing presented and it gets competitive and and perhaps not as supportive as we would want it to continue so that that's sort of a, a very much a question rather than I think a, a perfectly crafted opinion but I'd be interested to hear hear what everyone else thinks well I'll happily jump in I mean one of the crazy things I I thought around the, the time that the first lockdown came was how to fill the void I mean you've you've touched on you know this the catastrophe that happened not only to our industry but but to everyone in it and uh, particularly to artists just making their way in the world um who perhaps didn't qualify for some of the support that was out there right at the start um you know couldn't be furloughed didn't have uh, any of the support grants coming to them and I think f- filling the void with with creative work is really difficult when when the world is tumbling around you and I've found it really interesting to see how different people different artists individuals but but also organizations not just artistic organizations sometimes you know um sometimes other social media channels being really creative from a brand that isn't necessarily creative so i think that that was a really interesting element if there is any way of looking at this from an upside it's it's to see how people respond in a creative way to to the largest crisis I think we're ever going to live through. And I think the other reflection, Helen, as you were speaking about the, the two topics that, that we're, we're here to discuss is that I think in some way it became clear to me that for a lot of people in our industry, because there is a huge gap and a huge distance to go to have representation on our stage, in our audience, in our offices, in our boardrooms, etc., for some of us, this is the first time that we've really felt loss and injustice. And I think linking that through to Black Lives Matter and to George Floyd, I think it it really became very clear the amount of privilege that a lot of white people, speaking for myself, have been living in. And I think to to feel for the first time a small sliver of of injustice, it really brought home for me the need to talk and the need for action on all of the other topics that you've just mentioned. Um, I don't know whether that resounds with anybody else uh, in the room, but certainly I saw the link between the two. This means I have to say something, doesn't it? I'm afraid it does. (laughs) It came. (laughs) Damnation. Okay. We'll start with the coronavirus. It's an easier one in a very strange way. Everyone simply was lost. It was the only way to put it. Everyone had different sized boats that they could navigate through, you know, the whole pandemic and the coming out and the coming back. I found that it was interesting how at the beginning of it, there was a clamour to try and stay relevant, which sounds quite harsh. But the amount of, should I say, presence on social media when maybe they shouldn't have been present. <laughs> That's as nice as I can be. It... it People just were were desperate to still be present. And it's interesting because um, my friend Alison and I, we started talking to people about it because it it was just confusing to us. It was just very confusing. And to find out how different people felt about it all and and, and why they did what they did, essentially. Why they came into this whole rigmarole of 
of classical music in the first place, it brought people back to a sense, hopefully, of self. It made them realise why they did what they did and why they wanted to continue to do what they, what they loved. It also, in a way, was a reckoning because it's been tough. It's been tough for absolutely everybody, you know, and finding another outlet, another artistic outlet that maybe wasn't classical music was then another option to try and still create. But, you know, through the pandemics, and you can actually say that, and the lockdowns, we've, we've found a way to navigate that. People have had to think outside of the box, which I think has been really, really useful for companies because they never normally have to do that. It's given new perspectives. And the ones that have run with it and have created new things are the ones that will be able to have that template for future success because it shows that there are things that are possible that are not necessarily the traditional way of doing things, and it works. Everything that we have experienced has shown us that it wasn't all good, no matter how fantastic the frockage, no matter, no matter how fantastic the design, not all of it was good. And in this time, I suppose the hope is, is that artists and a general community can help make a change so that when we go back. I don't see there's a reason to go back. I think we should go forward and try and incorporate as much of the traditions of canon and everything else, but also remember that we need to move forward. And if we can incorporate those things, then it'll be a much better world that we return into, rather than getting frustrated by the restrictions and the idealism somehow of the past. And now I'm going to be quiet again. <laughs> Just to briefly feed off, you know, a lot of what you guys have said there. I, I remember reading, you know, Alan Clayton went over to Barcelona or somewhere in Spain recently. And, he, you know, in, in the press, he kind of talked about how privileged he felt to be there, firstly. But also, secondly, how he really didn't want to share it publicly or promote it because he understood what everybody was kind of going through at this time. And I have to say, when I read that, I was like, I, I'm not asking every artists to do that but you feel again that community exists where it's like we all understand what we're all going through and, and as you've all mentioned there that collective sense of loss and understanding that things will never kind of be uh, as they were and um, I was particularly struck when I read that and the other quick point I'll make was one person I spoke to in these interviews talked about singers having masks and you know the mask is on and they're showing you every event they're doing and how wonderful it is and for a brief period during the pandemic that mask came down and I agreed with that because yeah I'm one of many people I think that noticed that that different method of communication among opera houses among among singers it, it all and of course you, you know I think we all understand that the when the machine starts working again the ways that we promote our work they they all exist and they're they're all great in their own right but I suppose I personally enjoyed seeing people take their masks down. It felt it felt more genuine to me and and it, and more connected. But uh, thank you all so much for sharing. The next point I would like to raise ties in again on my exploration on transparency in the classical music industry throughout my interview process. A topic which was raised in a variety of contexts was the lack of clarity as to how musicians and artists made their living. 
Over 45% of the singers I interviewed stated that their family and friends did not comprehensively understand how they made their living as singers, with one singer noting that their friends made regular assumptions that their singing work was either voluntary or unpaid. A number of the singers I interviewed held down additional jobs separate to their careers as performers, and for many, those secondary jobs proved a lifeline throughout the course of the pandemic. Over a quarter of the singers I spoke to were ineligible for the government's self-employment scheme, either because they earned over the stated annual threshold or because they did not have enough years in self-employment tax returns to provide evidence of their financial status. This brings me back to something I spoke about in my brief introduction regarding the government's support for the arts throughout the pandemic. As I said before, although a 1.57 billion grant is an important and crucial lifeline for this industry, in reality, countless musicians will not see a penny of that money, nor will that money help them find a way to reintegrate themselves back into the industry. One singer I spoke to described the government support scheme as slightly unnuanced, not really taking into account how it is that many self-employed artists and creatives work. And again, I suppose I wondered, to what extent is this a product of the lack of transparency in the classical music industry? If it's unclear as to how a musician or an artist earns a satisfactory living, how are the government supposed to provide tailored or nuanced support? Now, I understand this was a pandemic and there wasn't a huge amount of time to develop a nuanced and niche system, but it was something that very much crossed my mind. And what is more... During the process of my interview with Glyndebourne Managing Director Sarah Hopwood, Sarah stated that one of her greatest fears as the operatic industry rebuilt itself following the pandemic was the realisation of just how much opera companies and events venues rely on freelance creatives. One of her goals as the industry recovers from the pandemic was to find a way to structurally support their freelance staff in the hope of offering them a greater sense of security and some kind of sense of stability. So I'd be very interested in hearing your guys' thoughts on this. In particular, whether you feel, one, uh, making a living in our industry isn't talked about openly enough. And two, do you have any thoughts or considerations on how companies and organisations might be able to better work with freelance creatives, better support freelance creatives? Do you think there are changes to the system that we could start to implement? Is there a way of making creative careers less unstable in this climate annie i think it's such a an important topic to talk about freelancers in absolutely in opera but also in arts the wider creative industries because there is i think i i'd even argue there's a fundamental inability across the whole country to understand how freelancers make their living and actually at the very top level for how government can and should be supporting those people in a crisis but also more generally i mean even looking at areas such as the Brexit negotiations and and other huge policy topics, freelancers were missed out and the way freelancers work were missed out again and again. And that's not just in our industry. I mean, you look at the creative industries, a third of people working in that sector, which is the UK's fastest growing sector and worth more than £100 billion, a third or more are freelancers. So to ignore them is to, um, firstly, is the wrong thing to do. It's morally the wrong thing to do. But also economically is just stupid because it's an absolutely crucial part of what is a sector that's propping up our economy realistically and it's going to be incredibly important for the future how we sort of translate that into 
opera companies say, I think firstly, and I, and I actually think a lot of companies have, have done this very well, but we have to recognise that we are only the work we put on. And that could be work in terms of sort of education, community work, um, stage work, a range of things. But we're not, we don't exist if we're just administrative structures that pass work backwards and forwards. That's not meaningful for any of the communities that we aim to work with and serve. Um, and absolutely crucial to that work is our network of freelancers. So even in the pandemic, we tried really hard um, to think what work could we be putting on and particularly in terms of funding, how could we be making sure that funnels through? Because for it to just pay for a structure to exist that doesn't do anything is, to my mind, meaningless. And I think it's it's been incredibly difficult to get that balance right. I'd love to hear how everyone else, how everyone else found that, actually, because I think it's, it's so important and it, and it has been challenging. Monique, please, yeah. Yeah, it's been really disheartening, I think, to see the large swathes of freelancers, people that had been really secure and successful, having lost all their work this year and being left, you know, with nothing. That, you know, like that foundation just wasn't wasn't there in the way that I suppose as an employee, you get more support when you just suddenly lose your job or something um, and there's a bit more mechanisms in place so it was a bit it was depressing and it does make me think that we need to change but how what that change is I I don't know it's really difficult because we're a seasonal festival and the work that we can offer is only for a short period of time or if it's all year round it's not enough to provide a living for someone so so that is difficult about what you can realistically do. I also think perhaps there is a little bit of shame in the industry and in someone saying, I've got another job that is my is what I make my money from and then singing is on the side and I want it to be a full-time job, but it's not. Um, and how can we support someone being able to continue their full-time job that they want to have and also be able to take a freelance job with you? How can we be flexible to allow someone in our industry that we acknowledge is really difficult to 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 make money from full-time and make a living from? So I think it's about us being understanding and trying to facilitate that for people and an openness to understand that someone can't drop other things in order to do this two-month job for you and working out how we can be a bit more open and understanding about that. I definitely think portfolio career is like the buzzword or buzz term at the moment you know people talking about having these various strings to your bow or you know things that can guarantee income in a, in a time of crisis let's say and then you're able to go and do your creative work but as you say you know I, I think we're still in a place where our industry the opera industry and, and other areas of work are slightly at odds as to how we're able to to do both and facilitate both it's a tricky one my friend described it as a she described opera work as almost like a trickle down economy she was like you know these names will get the first things and then these people will get it and then it's probably these people and then it's probably me and I was like yeah it's 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 tough it's really tough but while you wait for that work you need something alongside that's gonna support you I think yeah Gwen Johnny any any thoughts 
I don't want to keep jumping in front of Gwyneth, but because um, uh, <laughs> Gwyneth, you, you say it much better than I do, but I'm going to give it a go and then you can come. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I think, Annie, you said it without the freelancers, certainly talking about um, opera festivals or, you know, smaller um, classical music venues, not talking about the big monoliths of uh, of the country. We're, we're just a room without the freelancers and the participants you know without the artists and uh, stage crews and everybody else it's just a space with some seats in it and um i I think you know a very plain answer to your question helen about do we need to talk about making a living yes we do much much more but we at garsington we we thought right at the very start you know we are just a room and we ought to make sure that these freelancers who depend on us and others but certainly on us we were we were the ones cancelling the contract it wasn't our fault but you know we had to cancel the 2020 season what were they going to do so immediately we gave out just under about half a million in support grants because we thought you know if these guys can't afford to pay their rent they can't afford to buy food they're going to go and do something else and what's to say that they're going to be tempted back to come and work for us in the future if we don't help them get through this in some way and so that was really important it, yeah it, it wasn't enough but it was as much as we could possibly do and we saw that as really important at the time and I think we did it in in two tranches we did the amount that we could afford right at the very start which was which was a a large amount and then we topped it up later and we I remember having this conversation we we thought you know for some this is going to be 50 100 pounds is that just insulting should should we not do that and we as a team decided that it was really important not only to give that money because for many people that is a lot of money it's a weekly shop or more and for for others it just shows that we're still thinking about them so about six months later we we topped it up and it the messages that came back were really very moving but the other before i <laughs> before i stop and hand over to gwyneth but the other i think is with everything that's been said around people understanding the freelance career people understanding how singers make a living and with many of the other topics that we're talking about it in my mind it comes back down to education and the the program of music education in schools uh, okay you know there are exceptions to the rule but generally in state schools it, it is not as good as it was you know 10 20 30 years ago and i i wasn't in a state school 30 years ago so i can't say from my from my own perspective but i think that if you speak to people about career opportunities if they understand how it works as a career if they see themselves in those roles there is a chance that they would understand further down the road that it is a career it is a profession yes it's a calling as well i'm sure you know people do it because they love it but it is a business you know freelancers are businesses and people are earning their living by doing hopefully what they love as well but um i i think that that's my two pence i think it has to go back to education right at grassroots where we start talking to people about music and theater performing arts as a really valuable part not only of our economy but of our society but there's the rub isn't it because if we go school yes definitely education but if we're not considered viable in the first place by the government that deals with all of these things that makes it an almost impossible place to be you know culture is in many european countries a necessity it's it's something that drives along with everything else here not so much in fact it's not considered considered 
a pastime. It's not something that helps fund the country. It's not something that can soothe your soul, help your mental health, self-care, you name it. That's what the arts does for everybody. Everybody has survived this pandemic, the people that have, through watching a lot of Netflix, reading books, listening to music. All those things are the arts. You know, oh, I've painted. All those things are the arts. People actually cannot live without them. But yet, when you get higher up in government, it's not a consideration. We make more money than football ever has and will continue to do so. But unless we are considered professional and a necessity, it's going to make it a very, very difficult world for everybody to be in, in this particular country. Gwyneth, can I ask you a quick question about uh, stability for freelancers? What, what do you think about the German Fest system? Does that, is that better in your opinion? Um, German Fest system is good, but it's not for everybody because everybody cannot be Fest. There will only be a certain number for each opera house. We don't have an opera house in every single town. We have a, a limited number. So therefore, there will still be a huge amount of freelancers coming and going. Fests are wonderful. They can overwork you. They can underpay you. You know, there are the pros and cons of all of it. But there has to come a time in this country where there is a system where maybe there is a basic level of pay for freelancers. Maybe, if, that, if there were a possibility. Because we are valuable. What we do, the administrators, the crew, the singers, the musicians, the lighting, you name it, everybody is valuable. And as I said before, without those particular talents and skills that have been worked on for years and years and years it's not a johnny come lately kind of thing people have been grafting for years you know it's longer than surgeons do so therefore unless we can get some kind of value or we can be appreciated by the people higher up that everybody needs to be that way then there will be some motion but right now that isn't happening you know there was going to be a, a football super league and the world went mad. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> Just in quick response to your comment on education, Johnny, I, I, something I find interesting is even at Conservatoire, and I spoke to a number of my friends about it, you know, nobody talks about the, the financials. N nobody talks to us about the fact that it's going to be something else that will keep us afloat, at least in those early years, unless, you know, you happen to, to be straight into a contract or something which is fantastic but you know for 99 percent of the students coming out of those institutions no one's given any assistance on how to make a structured living as a musician and it's it's something i've been thinking about recently you know as i'm about to graduate and be poor <laughs> but you know you're just trying to figure out how that how that career looks for you and i often think the conservatoires it's it's something that should be a core part of these courses really how how to survive yeah yeah absolutely survive and create a, a semi-stable career i i think even more than that helen and this is just looking at when when i was um i mean it was many years ago now um but i was at conservatoire for a while and it wasn't just that we weren't taught it was that we were actively told that if you have a portfolio career and do things and this is more instrumental than singing so i'm just speaking from that experience but if you have other things then that doesn't look good which is as Monique was saying, absolute madness, because of course that is how the, the majority of freelancers balance. But that, that idea that if you're really good and re work really hard, 
all you'll have to do is sing or play not only yes absolutely we have to have to equip artists or find ways to make sure that that people have the skills they need but also make it okay to do those things because otherwise it's a completely unrealistic world that people are being sent out into and arguably actually having of course having all those other skills whether it's working on the education side teaching doing something completely outside the arts whatever does make people very rounded and often brilliant to work with and that's a something that's drilled into students often that really needs interrogating I think although I know in some institutions it already has been but I think there's still a way to go. Yeah I think that's a really interesting point because I've gone in and done a few talks with them students and I do think they sometimes do have questions that just I can't believe hasn't been discussed (laughs) to be quite honest as part of their course and there's so much like as a trained singer for example or instrumentalist there is so much you can do with that skill that's not just be an opera singer in operas and travel the world and do that and what I always find is really nice and heartening actually is we try and get a lot of our singers involved in our education work and you see after a couple of years actually loads of them go on to do that full time maybe they find that much more interesting they they've taken jobs in hospitals and full-time jobs in care homes where they look after the activities side or whatever and I just think there's there's ways you can use that skill and there's no shame in it being not on a stage and I, I do think that conservatoires have that responsibility a little bit more than maybe they have at the moment to yeah make people more rounded and give them options as well as teach them about tax returns and things like that which are big part of the big part of the job you're a business you're a business of one person so we, we added that to our young artist program back in 2014 i mean conservatoires do an amazing job um you know certainly i don't want to slam them because you know people learn a lot there but uh there are definitely gaps uh, around the uh, setting up of a business and so yeah we do tax seminars and uh kind of dummy auditions as well where people can get immediate feedback on you know, why don't you look me in the eye? Or <laughs> why did you stand over there like a lemon? Because um, you know. I was comfortable. The piece is about a lemon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, not slamming conservators at all. They do do a great job. I think it's just like the practicalities of the day-to-day real life. Because so much of it is about honing the craft and honing the voice and honing the instrument. And that's crucial. Just like you say, you're a business of one person. So in terms of asking people for advice or like where do you go to to kind of facilitate that I I do think it's an important thing to think about moving on to my third and final theme as all of you here know in every interview I asked the question as to what people's greatest fears were as the operatic industry the classical music industry rebuilt itself following the pandemic Alongside fears of job losses, institution losses and financial losses, over a quarter of my interviewees stated that they were worried the operatic industry would not have learned anything from this process. Now to elaborate on that, I think it would be fair to say for many of us, these various periods of lockdown resulted in uh, processes of self-discovery, changes of perspectives, uh, evaluations of people's values. A number of my interviewees talked about how the pandemic had made them question being singers, being musicians, and in conjunction with that, the need for opera, the purpose of opera, and exactly what opera meant to them. 
So when a number of my interviewees expressed this fear that our industry wouldn't have learned anything, I asked them to elaborate on that and I encountered a few common responses. The first was, yes, in this time when the world was halted by the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, will we see diversity championed in every level of cultural organisations from performers to conductors to artistic directors to repertoire choices and, and so much more really? Secondly, uh, in a time when the precarious nature of a career in the arts has been brutally highlighted, will we work to create better working conditions for creative communities? If we don't, how can we expect to achieve this equality and this diversity that we are striving for? And then thirdly, in a time where we all understand just how much our industry has suffered, how long will it take to recover? A number of my interviewees stated that they understood that as the operatic industry recovered from coronavirus, it would need to compensate for unprecedented financial losses. However, there were concerns that because of the potential need to drive ticket sales, to to get funding pledges, it would result in these lessons potentially not being learned. And I'd actually like to take a direct quote from tenor Ronald Sam, who in response to this question said, Coming out of this coronavirus, coming out of this lockdown, all the artistic organisations are going to have to really put on their best shows to get bums on seats. For opera, we're going to be doing all the hits. My only reservation is people of colour don't usually and naturally cast into all of the hits. Now, What strikes me about all of those answers and responses is that all of them ask the operatic industry to respond to contemporary events which are affecting our society right at this very moment. I think often a traditional and perhaps somewhat nuanced view of opera can see the art form stand apart from society's needs. You know, opera is the art form of the rich. It's the entertainment of the upper classes. Now, of course, we know that singers and industries are working tirelessly to break down that accessibility barrier. And in these answers, I think what we're asking of our industry is to work in response to and as a product of contemporary society. So do these concerns now offer our industry the opportunity to become more closely connected to the society it hopes to serve? So I'd love to know your thoughts on this. There are three kind of themes there, that idea that will we be able to kind of champion diversity, creating uh, a more financially stable way of being in this career and I think, you know, one common thing that came out was how do we reckon with these social ideas versus the need to essentially make profit or keep these businesses stable and afloat? Yeah, Monique. I think now is in a in a way, maybe you'll disagree, but um, it's it's quite a good time to try and get audiences to be a bit more open minded, because I think a lot of people are just really desperate to come back and see live shows. So we're finding that our our tickets are selling really well and people are really desperate to just see stuff again. So I do think it's a good time to think a bit outside the box, present things you wouldn't necessarily normally. Um, They haven't seen anything in ages. They haven't got too much to compare it to. Maybe their expectations were really low. That would be great. (laughs) But um, not really. (laughs) They're going to be great. But um, it is sort of that, that opportunity where you can sort of start from scratch because from big things to small things, whatever isn't going well, I'm like, we're in a pandemic. And it's hard to take people's complaints about things. So I think that's good with the audiences as well because they will always complain about little things. But I think the majority 
are just really happy to be seeing things again. And I think that should give a good opportunity to invite them to have a more open mind than maybe they would have in the past where they had so much choice and, you know, shows going on up and down the country and they could travel to see things. Maybe now they're just keen to see what they can. I agree with that about about audiences being more open-minded and it was really inspiring actually. We put on six concerts in the gardens last summer and a third of people who came to those concerts, which were quite traditional cool music concerts featuring our NHO young artists, about a third of them um, had never been to us before but they just wanted to come. And where I think we need to be so careful and make sure we're getting it right as an industry is that actually coming out of lockdown into this summer we have to get it right with people who might be trying us for the first time and right I think means making sure people feel very welcome whatever their background and whether they've come to us before but also I think trying to perhaps cast aside some of the less positive aspects of our work that have sort of stuck with us before so for example we've we um at Neville Holt have completely rethought our season this year we're going to be moving outside, we're having our largest audience ever and crucially we're lowering price points and also welcoming under 18s for free because we know that historically price has been a reason why many of our local community haven't been to our opera and we know that because they've told us and we've talked to them about it and they've said they said they don't want to take a risk on a really expensive ticket but they're quite interested in what we do and maybe they'll come and try. And what we're doing is trying to create something that not only sort of enables those people to come, um, people who might not have wanted to come to opera before for whatever reason, but means that when they're there, they feel really, really welcome and have an amazing time. And that doesn't have to mean an amazing time in the sense of extremely formal or, you know, holding on to some aspects that perhaps some people like and some people don't. It will mean amazing as in the music will be incredible, the staging will be incredible, and they'll know we're really delighted they're there. And I hope that means they'll want to come back. And I think if we can use people coming out of lockdown and being desperate to do something amazing to say, look, if you want the experience where you're going to hear incredible singers, see really dramatic stuff, be really moved and have something that feels totally different to what you've had for the last year, then actually opera is a really great thing for you to come and see. Then I think we have a, a chance to start building that new more diverse younger perhaps more representative audience that I think everyone wants to build we just haven't been necessarily quite sure or quite committed enough to doing so and this feels like if if we don't do it now then that's a hugely wasted opportunity that's a great manifesto Annie sorry I went on and on (laughs) sorry I'm so sorry I'm gonna shut up for a while now too much (laughs) Greta do you want to go go on I think the the idea of everything starting again and things coming anew in a certain way is is, is a fabulous thing. However, um, in order to attract new audiences, there has to be also, and I hate to do this because I never do this, when I was little and I went to the opera, I never saw anybody that looked like me, so I didn't think it was possible. There are wonderful singers in this country. That, that should and should have that exposure and 
you know, it, it, it's, the, it's the whole point of you can get new audiences. You can definitely get new audiences. There are huge audiences providing they know it's okay for them to come. So that welcome is important. It's so important. So they don't feel ostracized or they don't fit. That has happened. That happened to me last year. And I do fit. So that was even worse. In a very, very wonderful opera house. And I was told that I shouldn't be there. And I sat quite quietly for me, I might add. I sat quite quietly and said, okay, so I'm not moving. <laughs> and they went and got the manager and they said that someone very important was supposed to be here and I had to move. So I produced my ticket and said I was that very important person and I wasn't going anywhere. But the point being is that that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. And then that's in somewhere that's rather large. And I'm experienced, so if someone says something along those lines to me, I will not take umbrage, I will smile toothily, and I will re wreak my rewenge in a quiet form. But for people that haven't been before, and they, something like that happened to them, you will not see them for dust, they will slag off everything to do with the experience that they had to everybody that they know, and so on. So it's not a case of, of, of dumbing anything down, it's a case of opening the doors essentially that's the most important thing and also in a way to explain that opera despite the pomp and circumstance and the wonderful melodrama of it all is all about human emotion and when it's done right it can touch people that have never seen it before and they will cry their eyes out that's what the magic of it is and we need people to be able to talk about it with that joy and realism to communities that haven't experienced that and make it come alive for them that way so that, that when they come, it's okay. And it's, it ends up being a wonderful experience, but that means that there has to be an outreach of sorts from all the companies. They have to go into the communities. They have to make an effort, you know, and sometimes maybe the funding isn't there for that, but it's a necessity in order for this world that we love to continue and to move forward also explaining to them that it is just human emotion she loved him he's ugly he didn't want her she died the end it sounds silly but then they get it and it doesn't matter that it's in a foreign language it, it's basics like that that will bring us to a, a better state of being where if you go up to opera north as an example you go to leeds you go into, say you go into the newsagents that's next door. Oh, I saw you on stage last night. It was lovely. Oh, and I really did like, and it's just like, wow, that doesn't, you know, everybody goes to the opera. Everyone experiences. They tell you what they like. They tell you what you don't like. But it, that doesn't happen here. It's a very different type of audience. If you can get the under 18s, fabulous idea. Because if you get them when they're younger, they're with you for life, essentially. All they have to do is have that one moment and they will keep coming and coming and coming as adults and responsible human beings in the world. That's the power that this amazing vehicle has. And we just have to be able to make it reach more people and make it almost a normal thing. You're going to a musical? I'm going to the opera. I'll see you afterwards. It's not a big deal. And there can be moments of galas and fantastic things, but we have to reach as many people as possible to make them see that it is the most beautiful thing. And they will be touched and they will be moved. And oh my God, the costumes. And oh my God, the sets. And oh my God, it was amazing. 
that's the beauty of it all. And, and we just have to find a way of bringing it to everybody, not just a small select group of wonderful people. I mean, we could end it there. How on earth could I add anything more to that? <laughs> that was inspiring to hear. I'm sure everybody uh, in, the, in this group agrees, but um, I couldn't agree more with you uh, about the simplicity of a really uh, magnificent art form. Um, it's not a it's not a complicated cell and it should be special for everybody and everybody should have access to it and everybody should be able to see them on the stage in order for them to to take that step if they want to into a career um just just coming back to the quote you you read from uh ronald uh, i mean I, I think i thought about everybody else but i think we always want to put on the very best show I certainly Garsington wise, we're not thinking, oh, it has to be extra doubly special because it's at the end of coronavirus. Uh, it will be extra special, but that's not because the quality will be different on the stage. If anything, it will be greater than, than the time before. It'll be extra special because we've missed it and the audiences have missed it. And the people, you know, producing the sound <laughs> will miss it either in the pit or on the stage. And so I think, I don't think I'd want to be working in a job where I wasn't always striving for better than last time. Um, and I think that's true to you know most of my performing friends. That's partly why I love recording. You know, you do another take, you think, oh, okay, I'm really going to nail it this time. <laughs> you know, whether it's a solo disc or in a choir, you think, okay, you know, I can do it better this time. And I don't know, I, I think there's something about that to this. You know, we can always do better. And just to your point about will we as an industry keep the momentum, if you can call it that even, yet hopefully it will turn into momentum around diversity and improving working environments for people equality equity if we're able to build the head of steam in a way that i really hope we will i don't see that as being mutually exclusive to making you said making money but making the business work and you know gwen going back to you to your point about working in schools and you know obviously it's dependent on finance etc you know whilst you know people aren't standing at the door throwing donations at us i'm pleased that there are some really inspirational funders out there either institutionally a lot lots of household names i'm sure who've sponsored things at the opera house or wherever for a long long time but also individuals who really care about these topics and helen i was talking to you when when we were discussing this we decided in order to maintain our commitment to making a real change a lasting change a genuine impact um we're building a facility to create that space so that people can see themselves in that space and by that i mean we're going to build a sequence of rehearsal and workshop rooms all under one roof so that both our community work and on stage festival work take place in the same space and I'm really hoping that that will enable us not only to bring those equally important aspects of what we do together. So there's really interesting overlap so that people can see how it, you know, they can they can walk in and hear a tenor singing. They can walk in and, and see, um, you know, some set being built or a wig being made. But But also that we could use it as a space to convene some conversations to keep the pressure on us as an industry, on us as individuals in the industry, so that we can hold each other to account, so that it doesn't just turn into, oh, do you remember 2020? That was, oh yeah, we posted a black square and that was about it. So that actually we as an organisation have the facility and therefore the 
onus is on us to keep the pressure on fingers crossed the funding will be there for that too that's what i'm working on at the moment um but i think that's that's our kind of big picture we thought how how can we really make a difference you know we work a lot in the communities around our theater and they are extremely diverse you know all sorts of people from different backgrounds and we do a lot of work in school and, and bring those those children to our theater for, for free but how can we deepen that impact and how can we create that as a real legacy where they can think actually do you know what i'd love to be a set builder or i'd love to be a tenor or whatever they might even see me doing whatever it is that i do i can't even describe that and think oh actually that looks like a really interesting job i'd love to do that um or me in 10 years time you know whoever that will be uh so i'm hoping that that will keep the pressure on and allow us to keep the momentum can i add something a friend of mine said she's been in this country for 30 years and she says that she's been hearing the same discussions for 30 years and nothing really has changed. What I've noticed is there are people and institutions that just get on with it. They don't make a big song and dance about it. They just get on with the matter in hand. The ones that, well, we're discussing this. And I thought we'd have a, a discussion on those are the ones that things really, the, 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 the machines don't work in that way. And it's just, it's just an observation because John Gilhooley at the Wigmore, as a prime example, he doesn't talk about it at all. He just gets on with it. He just brings in new music. He just brings in new people. And it's just a fait accompli, it's done. And that's quite incredible. And when, as your company does and your companies do, they're the ones that need to be lauded and applauded and aided it's the ones that, you know, the, the machinations of it all, well, it's all very complicated and blah and blah. That doesn't help. Basically, it's the talk is wonderful, but sometimes the time for talking needs to stop and actual action has to take place. And the, the institutions and the companies that do, your three, I salute you because you don't talk the talk, you just get on and do it. But there are not that many that actually do. You know, you can come across time and time again, well, we're going to put on a show that has 98% black people just to show that we are... That's ticked a, a, a diversity box, congratulations, that will do you for the next 10 years. What happens in the seasons after that? What happens in in the operas that where it's, it's, not a, it's not a question of... That's the whole thing about opera. You can cast anybody literally to do anything, providing they have the talent. It's supposed to be where reality is is suspended and dreams are made so therefore the idea of saying well we don't we don't think that you quite fit fit what what are you trying to fit there's no particular thing to fit as i said the three of you i salute completely because you just get on and do it but there are, are bigger companies that have to show that they are doing things but the actual work isn't taking place for it to be a long lasting necessity okay and i'm going to be quiet again you lead me rather nicely there gwen into the final part of this special edition podcast episode part of the reason i invited these three opera companies to join me today was because during the course of their interviews i found the work they were doing both in relation to covid support and diversity incredibly heartening 
Um, so Johnny, Monique and Annie, I hope you won't mind sharing with us just a little bit of what you guys have been doing over the last year. Johnny, it might be worth starting with you since you've already mentioned your new Arts Hub initiative. But also during our interview, I'm aware we discussed how Garsington has adapted to the digital world. We talked a little bit about your feelings towards streaming stage performances and how Garsington's online approach chose to focus less on online performances and rather deliver a wide range of alternative content, such as things like your uh, Monday Motivation and Music for the Eye series. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Happily, I mean, for for some time, I've I personally have have not been a great subscriber to the live from the Met. I mean, I quite like it on the radio, but I just I think it's a different thing um, watching opera and probably musicals as well. Actually, definitely musicals as well. I didn't really enjoy Hamilton on the screen. Um, it's a funny thing. It's made for the stage. It's not made for a screen. And I think there are some incredible uh, film directors out there, you know, TV directors, vision mixers, who who compress it into a small screen. But um, it's it's not made for digital. And of course, we and many others have put our long long form performances on online through Opera Vision or on our own channels, and and that's great in some way to improve access i suppose although i've never really bought into that either you know I, I think the met has had some real problems with its own core audience choosing to go to the cinema rather than to the met i'm talking about when it was open obviously um but i never really see any follow-up to people who might have come across opera for the first time sitting in a cinema to think well actually you only got a fifth of what you should get you know now here's the next thing you know here's the ticket come along I've never really seen that. So moving on from that, we, a couple of years ago, we, we got some funding to to run a pilot to see how we could create some learning materials for digital. So we do lots of um, school projects and workshops uh, in schools with children. And sometimes we can only go in there for four days a year because we've got 16 partner schools and, and a relatively small program as a summer festival, um, small team delivering it as well. And we thought, well, there's no reason why we can't leave them with some kind of digital workshop package that that they could use interactively or something that would invite people to come and join our youth opera company and rather than it just being here's a film of them performing on our stage let's have a platform that has how to warm up your voice that has how to compose a song and lots of shorts like that so when the pandemic hit um we we thought well actually we've we've already started down this you know we started participation activity in in the digital realm so we immediately created a, a live stream called monday motivation and and it went really well and it was a half hour slot on a, every, every monday and uh it, we partnered with all sorts of people like classic fm which got us really good reach so we managed to reach about three hundred thousand people over that first lockdown but it got us thinking about made for digital and the way that you can use connectivity i suppose the internet to bring people together to work together not just here's an opera sit down watch it love it and then not even would you like to come and see it it's just there <laughs> uh, but actually having something that's made for digital and and maybe further down the road and i mentioned the arts hub that we're building at, at garsington my big dream is that we'll have low latency connectivity there that we could do a collaboration with paris opera and their youth opera company live and we could perform together at the same time in two different places you know the pandemic has really shone a light on the need for travel and the need to limit non-essential travel and wouldn't it be great if we could have a space that that is 
digital and creative at the same time. And we're putting that to the test with with a new commission that we're doing next year um, for the community. It's a, a people's opera by Roxana Panufnik um, about a Syrian refugee girl who comes to the UK. She's called Dahlia. And as part of that project, we are going to collaborate with a choir in Syria and a choir in Palestine. And they will both groups will be part of the show digitally. Um, I can't say more than that because we haven't worked it out yet. But that's the exciting thing <laughs> about digital because actually you can you can really play. And I think before I close <laughs> my spiel, I think that's the one thing I've really missed in the pandemic, apart from all the obvious things that we've been talking about. But it's play and joy and actually being playful and creative at the same time. Everything's so serious, rightly so. At the moment, it's a crisis and it's a disaster and it's completely traumatic for many people and and beyond what I could imagine for many others. But I really look forward to a time when we can just play again. And I think that's something that everybody in the arts loves, whether they know it or not. Monique, in our interview, you talked to me about Opera Holland Park's long-term digital plans and how you guys managed to reach a larger audience than ever before with things like your virtual open day and your virtual care home creative sessions. I think we'd love to hear a little bit more about these things. Um, Yes, following on from what Johnny said, yeah, digital has been a bit unavoidable, I guess, this last year. Um, We're a really small team and you know our season's very structured how it works and the education work we do the rest of the year round is is live and this year it's been really exciting actually to just think okay we need to think outside the box and we need to learn how to do digital stuff because that's what we're doing now so um it's been a it was a bit of a learning curve of what can we do what can we put out what do we already have you know like like someone said earlier about um content content at the beginning where that was what everyone was thinking about um and then we calm down and obviously start thinking a bit more about long term what what can we do that's a bit more meaningful um what content can we create in this time and of course as the lockdowns just got extended and extended it became a more serious thing to think about and now we do have um someone who's full-time on payroll a digital content producer for us which has made such a big difference because he knows what he's talking about and we never did. So he came on board and we could think, what what can we do? What, like from the old days, what's the events that we loved that we can create a digital format for? And as well as that, what new things can we do? What doors has this opened up? So it's been really nice all year round to sort of do really different things and plan ahead and also plan how we'll continue once we do start live performances, how we'll continue to work digitally. One really nice thing we did last summer is, um, so every year at our theatre, we have an open day where the whole site's just open and people can drop in. And there's lots of things. You can conduct our orchestra, learn to sing in a choir. Uh, We've got all our model boxes out and people doing makeup demonstrations. Lots of just fun things happening all over our site. And it's all free and the point is that people passing by just feel able to step across that threshold that maybe was terrifying before. So it's always the loveliest day unless it rains. And it's always been really nice. And we thought, how can we create that digitally? So it wasn't quite the same, but we still managed to have 
a digital open day where we had a whole day of things happening. So we had a dance class on Zoom, we had drawing lessons, we had some panel discussions with three of our um, conductors that we just put out. And again, it was all free, but it was scheduled and timetabled and people could drop in and out. And the interesting thing is that it got a much bigger reach than it would have had it been live. And it's a different quality of experience, I guess. And digital is never the same. But it did mean even more people could see it. And also with our education work where we couldn't go into care homes because no one was allowed to go into care homes. And so we were doing more live sessions and those care homes were quickly getting up to speed on how to be digital as well, like we were. And again, we just realised there's so much more reach when you do it like that. And even though it's not the same, you can you can see so many more people and have so many more people involved and outside of our our you know our borough um so that's been really nice and I think that's something that we'd like to see how we can keep building on that once we do go back to what we actually do and doing things live and I hope that we can continue to have both because there's positives to the digital work that we've definitely caught up on now which is nice. I always remember you, Monique, you were saying a bit about how you joined the diversity audit I'm in last year and how you felt that that had been like a really useful point for you and multiple members of your staff as well. I know in a a lot of your casting and and your young artist program, there's a lot of representation there, which I think is great from from Mulholland Park. But yeah, you said it had been like a a useful kind of starting point for you in terms of some conversation. It was good because we've always talked about diversity and made a... I was going to say make a commitment to it but unless something is on paper you know you're not bound to anything so it's really hard to keep that motivation so I think that was what that was what was really good about I'm in is that we sat down and we had to actually go through each statement and challenge ourselves and talk about it so there was eight of us and get all these series of statements like to what extent do you think that you do this? And we spoke about it. And actually what was really interesting is that different departments of the company thought we did do that well and that we didn't do that well. So we're totally conflicting opinions because when you haven't sat down and actually all said, what do we all think? You don't know. You're just doing your part of the job where you think that everything's going quite well and it has to be company-wide, obviously. So that's been really really good it made us reassess everything and aspects of of diversity and inclusion that we hadn't even thought about now we've continued to meet once a month and set ourselves real targets for what we need to work on and update each other and it keeps us talking and if anyone's seen some interesting training or anything like that then we can talk about it whereas before we just didn't have that space I suppose so by designating a time where we make a commitment to talking about it has been really really nice and the openness has just been very refreshing. Annie when we spoke you explained to me how Neville Hall Opera had supported their young artists throughout the pandemic and also the program you've been devising to guide aspiring young singers through every stage of their operatic education. I think we'd love to hear a little bit more. Thank you it's it's so interesting to hear, hear more actually in more detail about about what everyone's doing it's really inspiring and I think what perhaps comes through in this discussion but also actually from talking to um, colleagues and artists across the sector as well is that these sort of seismic events like the pandemic like the Black Lives Matter movement really force you 
as a company, as an organisation, as a community to, to, to re-examine what you're for, what you do, who you're doing it for, who you're listening to and who you're talking to. I mean, there's nothing like facing sort of financial ruin to really be like, okay, what matters? What are we going to spend money on where we can really make a difference? Because we have not got a spare pound. And and for us, actually, it was very clarifying to think, right, yeah, every every single thing we do has to have meaning. And actually, on what you said earlier, Gwyneth, about sort of getting on and doing things, I think one of the things that, that can paralyse individuals and organizations is trying to trying to do everything because no one can fix all the world's ills in you know one brilliantly thought out program but what we found quite rewarding but also I think I think the right thing to do is working out it might be a tiny thing but working out what we can do that will make a difference so for us we focused on our young artists as we talked about earlier those singers at the start of their careers who fall through the gaps in terms of support but also I think once things started coming back were often being overlooked for sort of more established singers who were suddenly in the UK and and available so we made sure that every piece of live work we did focused on them and actually now because our supporters our members our audience have seen them so much they're our celebrities (laughs) it's quite nice that they some of our um, members saw a young artist perform who'd also seen them online and sort of it, it honestly for them they are the superstars of the opera world and they're absolutely the centre of what we do. So that felt very important to us to continue. And then we also looked at our education programme and the thing we felt could make a difference would be because we're a, a small team, but we are really fortunate to have had sort of education at the centre of what we do since we started in 2013. We wanted to create new programmes that meant we bridged every moment of education up to our young artist programme. So we launched a, a foundation artist programme which will see five of the students who took part in our school schemes coming back and performing on our stage. They're at the sort of end of school, about to go on to a higher education stage. Then hopefully they'll come back as young artists in in the future. And now it means, we hope, someone who's a primary school student can look at Neville Holt Opera and go, okay, I, I know I can see that if this is something I care about, this company will support me every stage right up until starting a career in the industry. And then finally, we looked at what, what we can do to serve our community better. You know, we're an opera house in Leicestershire. There's not, there's some great opera. There's not masses. And that really influenced, I, I spoke about it a bit earlier, but influenced how we plan this year's festival. And it felt like this year, we can't, for where we are, we can't do less and we can't put our prices up and we can't have fewer spaces. So we totally changed our model and we've got this outside theatre and we're super excited to see what happens but with those three things I think we've really summarised what we're about what we want to be able to do and and where we can make a difference and it will be really crucial I think for the year ahead not to get kind of overwhelmed by the fact that perhaps we'll be suddenly allowed to do more and allowed to do everything and you know touch wood fingers crossed perhaps have slightly less terrifying budgets in 12 months time but who knows Um, And I hope we can keep that clarity on what the point of us is, because that's what I think the pandemic and and, you know, crude, like really important moments always force you to think about what what the point of anything is. And I hope we can all as a as an industry keep a really clear eye on that, but also articulate it really well and make sure it doesn't get lost as we start to open up again. 
Gwen, I know you're not from an institution per se, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts or comments on what you've just heard. I think that uh, the way that you all want to incorporate digital into the future is important because it has given such reach that companies won't have had. I mean, that's, you know, to have reached 300,000 people, that's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. That many people wouldn't come through, you know, your doors for an eternity. It would take a long time to get that many people and to be able to show who you are and what you do and, and, and what you want to be to that reach of people, that has to be a positive. You know, because it won't just be in this country, it'll actually end up being all over the world. So that if a time comes when people are traveling again, etc., and so forth, they'll head to what they saw online and they'll want to experience it for real. And that's an amazing thing. I think the other thing that is important about the digital, which is it's really important, is that it's still another form of communication which people kind of want to back away from because it's a little bit weird and it's it's different and we're not used to it but there's something that uh, Sharon D. Clark said she said even though I am not where my audience is I know that they can see me they can hear me and I know that I can still reach them and when you think about it like that it's just another wonderful opportunity and that makes it a special time rather than it being debilitating because we don't know what angle the camera is supposed to be at and this is all very very new and, and you know and help us all if you can remember that it then becomes just a ve- another wonderful vehicle of communication and it but it, it can touch people worldwide and as long as companies can take that on board and run with it it'll just be an added tool to that amazing toolbox that they can then just fling out at any opportunity You know, or if there's a thing that is special and they want it to be seen by everybody, you that you have the vehicle to do it. And that that's amazing. I think that's actually ended up being a really positive thing about this whole thing. Your reach can be worldwide rather than for one country or for one particular county. And that that's really, really special. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, I think that's uh, a huge amount of food for thought that we've uh, we've covered there. Um, but, you know, as I close, I'd really like to extend my thanks to everybody that's joined me. So thank you, Gwen. Thank you, Monique. Thank you, Johnny. And thank you, Annie. It's been great to have you guys on this call and to have such a really interesting and I feel like a, a positive discussion on two topics that I think are, are just still so current important and relevant uh, in our industry at this very moment so yeah thank you guys thank you thank you so much Helen. thank you so much. and so there we have it just before i wrap up i wanted to offer one final point of interest which came out of my research throughout the course of my interview process i heard an incredibly wide range of experiences thoughts and opinions As I interviewed more and more people, I came to realise I personally was approaching each interview with a set of expectations. Based on what I knew of each interviewee beforehand, I was making assumptions as to how I imagined they would have reacted to the coronavirus pandemic and to the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence. Every single time, my assumptions were wrong. 
Something which quickly became evident to me across the course of my interview process was that each person's responses to the pandemic and to the Black Lives Matter movement were a product of their entire being. Never had I seen intersectionality display itself in such an evident form. Um, Just as a quick reference point, the Oxford English Dictionary defines intersectionality as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class and gender, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. My interviewee's responses could not be singularly categorized by gender, by race, by economic background, by family relationships, by class or by age. People's responses were a product of the interdependence and amalgamation of all these things. I found that interviewees who had some sense of financial security, whose close friends and family had remained healthy throughout the pandemic, and who had a reasonable living arrangement, had not found the pandemic to be as distressing as those who did not. Yet, it really was incredibly hard to categorise how people fitted into the categories I've just listed. Some people's financial security was a product of family support. Others was a product of a lucrative career. Others a product of decades of consistent work. Health of friends and family really varied depending on pre-existing health conditions, age, where they lived in the UK and the nature of their work. People's overall living situations were slightly easier to demarcate. I tended to find that those living in London were living in, let's be honest, slightly less generous surroundings. And similarly, those of an older generation who owned their own property tended to find themselves in a more fortunate living position. And as a result of that, found the effects of the pandemic perhaps, uh, one could say, less intense. Interviewees of a younger generation, I found, were more aware of the veracity of the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence due to the use of their smartphones, apps and things like social media. Yet, interviewees' responses to the movement really depended on a whole range of things. Their gender, their race, their social and political positioning and their economic background. I was surprised to find that race did not categorically dictate responses to the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence. Age, gender, economic well-being, political positioning, all of these things played additional and further parts. If I had more time and further resources, I would have loved to dig down into the intersectionality of my interviewees and offer further consideration on, for me, how, like never before, the combined effects of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement have shown people as total products of lived experience. Over the course of the pandemic, I held multiple discussions with friends and colleagues on how it was impossible to predict people's behavioural responses to the pandemic. Some fully retreated. Others didn't see the need for social distancing. Some wanted to get back to normal as fast as possible. Others appreciated the time they'd had to reconsider their situation. Some believed national health and well-being should be the country's top priority. Others felt economic prosperity was of greater importance. And in a similar way, people's responses to the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence were hugely varied. Some saw it as a period of realisation and reckoning. Others found it hard to understand and come to terms with. I'm sad to say some felt the movement wasn't hugely necessary, believing enough progress had been made in the last 40 to 50 years. Others said it wasn't anything that they hadn't seen before, firmly believing it really was the time for the talk to stop and action to happen. To say that we are products of our lived experience often seems like I'm stating the obvious. However, 
I think when faced with adversity, whether that be a major human rights movement or a global pandemic, we see so clearly in people's behavioral patterns and responses that we're not just men or women. We are not just of a certain age bracket. We are not just of a certain class or economical circumstance. We are the total combination of all these things and more. And it is this interplay, it's this blurring of the lines that defines our responses and reactions in these times of crisis. It's been fascinating to explore the operatic industry's response to the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence. My roundtable discussion today has shown you just a handful of the conversations I held and a summary of the most prevalent themes and issues I discovered. There is so much more to consider in relation to this topic. But sadly, I'm out of time. And so with all of that, I'm going to bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much for listening and taking the time to hear my research project. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to every single person I interviewed across this process, but in particular, Monique, Annie, Johnny and Gwyneth, who joined me in recording this podcast episode. Additional thanks must go to my research supervisor, Janet Munro, and my head of faculty study, Sophie Fuller. If you have any thoughts on anything you've heard today and want to get in touch, um, I'd love to hear from you. Our website address is www.wheresmyfreakingdressingroom.com. Our email address is wheresmyfreakingdressingroom at gmail.com. And we are on social media. Our Twitter is at dressingroompo1. Our Instagram is at dressingroompod. And our Facebook is forward slash dressingroompod. Thanks once again for listening. Where's my freaking dressing room? We'll be back again super soon. And do not worry, Alex will be back. And I can promise you he will be more outrageous than ever. 